This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of The Joy Challenge. Discover the ancient secret to experiencing worry-defeating, circumstance-defying happiness. Written by pastor and best-selling author Randy Frazee and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Hey folks, welcome to Footnotes. I'm your host, Jamar Tisby, bringing news and views to help you become a more informed citizen, activist, and believer. In this episode of Footnotes, I talk about the 1619 Project, and I explain the backlash. I talk about why Jay-Z's partnership with the NFL may be problematic. I dissect the absurdity of Trump's chosen one comment, and I throw cold water on the reality of the Chick-fil-A versus Popeye's chicken sandwich debate. But before we get to that, some announcements. Reviews. We're at 189 reviews on iTunes. That's up from 176 on the last episode. I'm hoping by the time we get to the next episode of Footnotes, we can be over the 200 reviews mark. Remember, when you subscribe, rate, and review, that makes it easier for other people to find the podcast. And in just a moment, I'm going to throw in an incentive for you to subscribe, rate, and review. But first, let me read one of the reviews. This one is by Leonard Edlow. He writes, Jamar, thank you for doing this podcast. I am a rural liberation black preacher that in so many instances finds myself alone and isolated. Thanks not only for the information, especially things I sometimes miss, but also the intellectual stimulation. Keep up the fight for justice and prayers for you as you write your dissertation. Leonard, thank you. Thank you so much for that. I know that feeling of feeling like you're the only one who's noticing these things or who's thinking in a particular way about these issues because you're surrounded by so many people who think differently. So I'm glad to be another voice in the chorus of voices who's concerned about following Jesus Christ faithfully, understanding the Bible well, and pursuing justice. And thank you especially for praying for this dissertation. Boy, do I need it. Pray for clarity, pray for uh, focus as I try to get this thing done as quickly but as well as possible. So I appreciate that review. Also, here's something special for you. Folks, I've been wanting to do this for a while. Ever since we started this podcast, Footnotes, I've been wanting to do a book giveaway. So here it is, our first book giveaway. And I'm not giving away just one book, not even two books, but three books. And I call this the Racial Justice Starter Kit. The Racial Justice Starter Kit. Why? Because these books have been foundational for me in understanding how race and racism work, how they function, and what we can do about it. So obviously these aren't the only three books you can start with, but I found them helpful and I think you will too. The first one is Divided by Faith, Evangelical Religion and the Problem of Race in America by Michael Emerson and Christian Smith. I reference this book in almost every talk I give in numerous podcasts. I should be getting royalties 
off of all of these references, but it really is helpful to understand why our churches are racially divided in the first place. It's by two sociologists. Uh, they're focusing specifically on evangelical Christianity and the black-white racial divide, but it has applications and principles that you can sort of use across any kind of racial and ethnic divides among Christians. So Divided by Faith, the second book, Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting Together in the Cafeteria? and other conversations about race. Obviously, that's a very short title, and you don't really get a sense for what the book is from the title. I'm just kidding. Obviously, it's all right there. Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting Together in the Cafeteria? by Beverly Daniel Tatum, and uh, she's a social psychologist. She's analyzing this question. Why is it that groups of students um, cluster together in racial or ethnically specific groups. And she talks about the psychology and the sociology behind that. It's a really, really helpful book. And then lastly, I got to do it. I I do think it's helpful. I know it sounds self-promoting, but whatever. It's The Color of Compromise, The Truth About the American Church's Complicity and Racism. Of course, it's my first book, and I walk through the history of the complicity of white Christianity and racism in the United States from the colonial era on up to to the present day, and I end with a whole chapter on some practical next steps. So it's a call to action. I think you'll appreciate it because uh, it it, it uses history as a vehicle to to convey these concepts. So if you're excited about this, and, and you may have all these books, you may have read them all, but what about people in your life who haven't? Are there parents or family members, brothers and sisters? Are there friends and acquaintances, co-workers, maybe your pastor uh, or elders or other people at the church? So even if you have access to these books, others in your network probably don't. And so if you wanted to give away the giveaway, then go ahead and give it away. Here are the directions. First of all, subscribe, rate, and review to, to footnotes. Um, you can subscribe with one click. Uh, when you rate and review, that's that's one action, basically. When you rate it, they're going to prompt you to review it. So do that, and then take a screenshot of it so I know what you wrote. Secondly, post on social media and use the hashtag footnotes and link to this show. Uh, so share, share, spread the word. Let other people know about footnotes. Then lastly, email me your evidence. Email footnotespod1 at gmail.com. That's footnotes pod and the number one at gmail.com. Post your screenshot of of subscribe rate and review. Let me know what comment you wrote and who wrote it. Uh, Give me a link or a screenshot to your post on social media. That can be Instagram. That can be Twitter. That can be Facebook, something else. And then um, email me. And I'll don't worry if you can't remember all those instructions. I'll put all of this in a blog post up at jamartisby.com. That's J-E-M-A-R- Tisby, T-I-S-B as in boy, Y, dot com. And uh, it'll all be in a blog post there. But enter to win this book giveaway, the Racial Justice Starter Kit. Doing that for you. Hope you appreciate it. This year, 2019 marks 400 years since 20 and odd Negroes were forcibly brought to this land, and it is widely looked at 
as the start of race-based chattel slavery in this country. Now, a new project, the 1619 Project, aims to tell the story of 400 years since that date and the ramifications of slavery. Here's what it says from a PBS NewsHour interview. 400 years ago this month, the first enslaved people from Africa arrived in the Virginia colony. To observe the anniversary of American slavery, the New York Times Magazine launched the 1619 Project to reframe America's history through the lens of slavery. The project lead is reporter Nicole Hannah-Jones. And then the interviewer asks Nicole Hannah-Jones why this topic, and she says, well, you don't have very many opportunities to ever celebrate the 400th anniversary of anything. And it seemed to me that this was a great opportunity to really, as you said in your opening, reframe the way that we have thought about an institution that has impacted almost everything in modern American society, but that we're taught very little about, that we're often taught is marginal to the American story. And we wanted to do something different. We wanted to use the platform of the times to force us to confront the reality of what slavery has meant for our development as a nation. So that was Nicole Hannah-Jones. Now, from a historian's perspective, 1619 is an important date because it marks the year that Africans were forcibly brought to the Virginia colony and the start of enslavement in the British colonies of North America. Now, there are all kinds of caveats to put on that date. For one thing, Africans had already been in North America as early as the first part of the 16th century when Spanish explorers brought them. And there is some debate among historians about whether those 20 and odd Negroes were actually enslaved or were they indentured servants, because there's some evidence that some of them gained their freedom after a period of servitude. And even in those early days, uh, they went on, some of them, to become uh, slave owners themselves. Nevertheless, with all of those caveats, 1619 is still an important historical marker, and it is right, I think, to commemorate it. That's why for our first national conference with The Witness, uh, the, the theme is joy and justice continuing the 400-year journey of black joy and justice from 1619 to 2019. So October 4th and 5th in Chicago, we're going to be talking about 1619. We're going to be talking about the history there and the legacy there from a black Christian perspective and how in this country our experience has been one of a constant struggle for justice, but one that is also the constant striving for joy in the midst of pursuing that justice. So go to joyandjustice.com to register for the conference and to learn more about it. Now, what I found most interesting and disappointing about the 1619th Project is not the project itself, but the backlash it received. So this project was meticulously researched People who wrote it, and they were all black people, I think, or African-descended um, people, uh, they poured their minds, their hearts, their souls into this project. I got to say, for some of you who don't write or, or, or don't know, for, for black people to talk about their experiences, even if it's sort of distant history chronologically, knowing that we are connected to this history in an integral way, in an experiential way, oftentimes, it is extremely difficult. It's difficult to talk about it, and it's difficult to write about it and then put it out there where absolutely anybody can comment and say any darn thing they please. 
So this is this is soul wrenching work. This is hard work. And so all of these authors put their heart and soul and minds into this project. And the response from so many online was denial and outrage. Like, how are you going to deny this history? You, you can corroborate this any number of ways. There are dozens of books written about any particular issue that you want to study in terms of race in America. Hundreds of books, if you look at the entire catalog, right? So, so you can cross-check and reference, not to mention these are scholars, right? So, so the thing in the academy is your work gets put under the scrutiny of your peers. So it's not like a blog post where I can just write any old thing, press publish, and it's out in the world. With The facts could be wrong. The opinions could be just total garbage. When you write a scholarly work, that is subjected to peer review. That means three to four or more people read this thing and critique the heck out of it before it ever sees the light of day. So like, like this is not, this is not, um, just people shooting from the hip. This is well-researched stuff. And it, it, in the, in, in the academy and beyond for, for most reasonable people, it's not even debatable. Like this stuff happened, what they're writing about in the 1619 project, but too many people are saying, no, it didn't happen. Didn't happen this way. This is just spin. And there's outrage about it. Like, like people are mad that folks are commemorating 1619 and, and the 400 years since then. Uh, they think it's a conspiracy to rewrite history. They think it's just, you know, trying to indoctrinate people against uh, America being a great country or something. Um, but you know what? We need to rewrite history. We need to revise it because the history of slavery has been deliberately distorted and often left almost entirely out of our public discourse. So in other words, there's a corrective needed. Let me give you an, let me give you a quick history lesson. All right. This is one of the thing, the first things I learned, um, as I started the academic study of history. There's something called the Dunning School, D-U-N-N-I-N-G. It's named after William Archibald Dunning, who lived from 1857 to 1922. He was a political science and history professor at Columbia University, and he pioneered a despicable interpretation of the Reconstruction era that followed the Civil War. The Dunning School of Interpretation claimed that the Civil War, and specifically Reconstruction, had decimated the peaceful and well-ordered society of the South, that it had all been this great big mistake. He said that black people being able to vote and hold elected office, that was a terrible mistake because we weren't ready or suited for it as a race. Now, this interpretation of slavery, the Civil War, Reconstruction, and white supremacy, it reigned for decades as Dunning and his colleagues indoctrinated generation after generation of historians through their teaching and supervising dissertations and their publishing and all of that. And it's not until people like W.E.B. Du Bois literally rewrote the history of Reconstruction in his very lengthy book, called Black Reconstruction in, uh, I believe, the 1930s. And then other historians, they started seeing the light in the 1950s and 60s that the public opinion about Reconstruction started to change. This is the power of history. The stories we tell ourselves about the past shape narratives of the present. If we have a distorted view of what happened before, 
then we'll have a distorted view of our circumstances right now. That's why initiatives like the 1619 Project are so important. It's not just about the past. It's about telling the truth and letting the truth set us free. I'll give you the words of Nicole Hannah-Jones from her own mouth on that PBS NewsHour interview because she puts it so well. Every piece in here is deeply researched. It is backed up by historical evidence. Uh, our fact checkers went back to panels of historians and had them go through every single argument and every single fact that is in here. So it's really not something that you can dispute with facts. Uh, but the other thing is, is we, if we truly understand that black people are fully American. And so the struggle of black people to make our union actually reflect his values is not a negative thing against the country because we are citizens who are working to make this country better for all Americans. That is something that white Americans, if they really believe, as they say, mm -hmm. that race doesn't matter, we're all Americans, should also be proud of embrace that story. Um, we cannot deny our past. And if you believe that 1776 matters, if you believe that our Constitution still matters, then you also have to understand that the legacy of slavery still matters. And you can't pick and choose what parts of history we think are important and which ones aren't. They all are important. And that narrative um, that is inclusive and honest, even if it's painful, is the only way that we can understand our times now and the only way we can move forward. I think what if people read, for instance, the story on why we don't have universal health care, what it shows is that racism doesn't just hurt black people, that there are lots, there are millions of white people in this country who are dying, who are sick, who are unable to pay their medical bills because we can't get past the legacy of slavery. This affects all Americans, no matter if you just got here yesterday, if mm -hmm. your family's been here 200 years, no matter what your race are. Our inability to deal with this original sin is hurting all of us. And this entire country is not the country that it could be because of it. Thank you to all the contributors to the 1619 Project. And thank you to all the truth tellers out there. We need you. Rapper, billionaire, mogul, empresario, Jay-Z, inks a deal with the NFL. Here's a summary of the deal from the New York Times. It says, looking to move past an uproar over player protests, the NFL has signed a deal with the rap star and impresario Jay-Z to gain a foothold in the music business and seal of approval from one of the country's biggest African-American celebrities for its social justice efforts. The deal with Rock Nation, the rapper's entertainment and sports company, calls for the firm to be the NFL's, quote, live music entertainment strategist. In that role, Rock Nation and Jay-Z will consult on entertainment, including the Super Bowl halftime show, and contribute to the league's activism campaign called Inspire Change. The partnership gives Jay-Z a role in selecting and producing the country's most-watched musical performance. The 12-minute Super Bowl halftime show is seen by more than 100 million people each year. The deal also risks Jay-Z appearing as being co-opted and neutralized by an organization he once criticized. Here's NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell on the deal. He said, we don't want people to come in and necessarily agree with us. We want people to come in and tell us what we can do better. I think that's a core element of our relationship between the two organizations and with Jay-Z and I personally. 
And Jay-Z himself said the NFL has a great big platform and it has to be all inclusive. They were willing to do some things to make some changes that we can do some good. So the context. Y'all remember Colin Kaepernick. Cap started kneeling during the national anthem before football games, and he did it to protest police brutality, specifically against African Americans. Remember all these cell phone videos showing black people unarmed most of the time, literally getting killed before our eyes. And so he started kneeling to pro- By the way, you should also know the backstory. He began by sitting down, and then after a conversation with a military vet and another, who's also another player, uh, he decided to kneel as a more honorable gesture after that conversation. You should also know that about 75% of players in the NFL are black. And it's also interesting to note that even as Jay-Z in this new partnership advises the NFL on the Super Bowl uh, halftime show, Jay-Z himself turned down an invitation to perform at the Super Bowl show because of the NFL's recalcitrance on racial justice issues. And you remember that line from one of his songs, you don't need me, I need you. Every night we in the end zone. Tell the NFL we in stadiums too. (laughs) Yeah, 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 yeah. That's my lame effort at at sounding um, like a rapper. But anyway, so there's two views on this. One is that Jay-Z has been co-opted by the establishment in a hollow gesture designed to appease critics and offer good optics, but without substantive change or justice. Alternatively, some view this as Jay-Z using his influence as a billionaire and one of the most famous musical artists on earth to work for change from the inside. So here's my thoughts on it. I think it's exceedingly difficult to paint Jay-Z as naive or mercenary enough to enter into this partnership, either as a sellout or someone who's just looking to capitalize economically from this controversy. Why do I say that? Well, Jay-Z has been an outspoken critic of injustice especially as as it relates to criminal justice, for years. Uh, As just one example, Jay-Z helped free the rapper Meek Mill after he spent months in jail for a questionable probation probation violation. Jay-Z wrote an op-ed in the New York Times advocating for Mill's release, and he donated money towards Meek Mill's legal fees. Jay-Z also helped produce a documentary called Time, the Khalif Browder story. To bring light to the tragic and frustrating case of a young man, Khalif Browder, who spent three years in jail at Rikers Island while awaiting trial, just to await trial. Much of that time was spent in solitary confinement where he endured the abuse of prison guards. Browder battled depression after his release, but ultimately committed suicide in 2015. And Jay-Z helped produce that documentary. So in those cases and several others, Jay-Z has been there. And I think that counts for something. I think the burden of proof is on anyone who thinks that after years of very public advocacy, Jay-Z is selling out to make a quick buck. But there is a case to be made about Jay-Z pursuing a profit. There's another line in one of his songs, what's better than a billionaire? Two, especially if they're the same hue as you. In other words, more black billionaires like he is. He is the quintessential black capitalist whose lyrics and actions seem to indicate that he thinks the best way to solve injustice is to make sure everyone makes more money. And you could make that case about 
Jay-Z in this NFL deal. Time will tell. I think you also have an uphill battle if you say that Jay-Z is being duped. To me, that seems even more implausible. We know Jay-Z as a drug dealer turned rapper turned mogul. Earlier this year, he became the first rapper to achieve billion, that's with a B, billionaire status. Now, maybe that's an argument to support the people who think he's just in this NFL partnership for the money, but it's certainly not an argument for calling him a fool. Now, of course, I could be wrong. It's hard to evaluate anyone's internal motives. We can only look at their actions. For me, the biggest issue is where is Colin Kaepernick in all this? Kaepernick still doesn't have a job in the NFL. He recently reached a settlement with the NFL for an undisclosed amount, a financial settlement, but it's clear that his protesting got him kicked out of the league, and that injustice has not been repaired. He still wants to play, but he can't. He won't. People won't. So did Jay-Z at least speak to Cap before he made this move? According to Jay-Z, the two did speak, but Cap's longtime girlfriend, Nessa Diab, said... This is a lie. Colin never spoke to Jay-Z and NFL ahead of that deal being done. They never included him in any discussion that was on Instagram. Eric Reed, Cap's staunchest ally, who's another player in the NFL, um, he's, he called this an, another disingenuous, disingenuous partnership to address social justice while collectively blackballing Colin, the person who brought oppression and social injustice to the forefront of the NFL platform. And Colin Kaepernick's lawyer, Mark Garagos, said this, that this deal between Jay-Z and the NFL crosses the intellectual picket line. He said it was a cold-blooded move on Jay-Z's part, And he said, I can confirm to you that the deal was already done prior to any conversation that Kaepernick had with Jay-Z, and he certainly didn't have any conversations with the NFL. Now, what did Jay-Z say in defense of himself? He said, and I'll read you the extended quote because I want you to have the context. He said, I think that we forget that Colin's whole thing was to bring attention to social injustice, correct? So, in that case, this is a success. This is the next thing, because there's two parts of protesting. You go outside and you protest, and then the company or the individual says, I hear you. What do we do next? So for me, it was like action, actionable item. What are we going to do with it? Everyone heard and we hear what you're saying, and everyone knows I agree with what you're saying. So what are we going to do? So we should, millions of millions of people, and all we get stuck on, Colin, not having a job. I think we're past kneeling. It's time for action. So says Jay-Z. Just some final thoughts on this. I think Jay-Z is a businessman who sees a lucrative and a -a one-of-a-kind opportunity. I don't think he'd get into this if it wouldn't increase his bottom line. At the same time, I think Jay-Z sincerely believes that he can do good. And he's a billionaire. Financially, he's actually the equal of many of the owners and administrators in the NFL, but perhaps Jay needs to read a little bit more history. Change from within happens, but not the way you think. More often than not, it's the system that changes the person inside and not the person who changes the system. I think Jay is either going to 
have to make some controversial compromises in this role, or he's going to have to leave the partnership entirely because he can't get anything done. Either way, this was probably not the move for Hove. You can't really move forward if you're leaving our most courageous activists like Colin Kaepernick behind. Trump calls himself the chosen one. In a summary by Anthea Butler via the Religion News Service, she says, This week, President Trump took on two new titles, one bestowed upon him and the other self-proclaimed. First, in a series of tweets, the president quoted Wayne Allen Root, a noted conspiracy theorist and messianic Jew, who said that, quote, President Trump is the greatest president for Jews and for Israel in the history of the world. The Jewish people love him like the king of Israel. If being named king was not enough, the president would go on to state later that day at an impromptu press uh, availability with the media that he was, quote, the chosen one to take on China. Uh, this, this has all kinds of problems. The, the the whole thing of being called the greatest president for Jews and for Israel in the history of the world, that the Jewish people love him like the king of Israel, and then him calling himself the chosen one, right? All right, so here's how Reverend William Barber of the Poor People's Campaign put it on Twitter. He said, King Nebuchadnezzar boasted, look at this, Babylon the Great, and I built it all by myself to display my honor and glory. The words were no sooner out of his mouth than a voice out of heaven spoke, this is the verdict, your kingdom is taken from you. He's quoting Daniel chapter 4 right there. And Thea Butler in her article goes on to say, Trump's declaration of being the chosen one and his enthusiastic reception of king of Israel may may end up backfiring on him. For one thing, some Christians would consider using the phrase the chosen one very much like blasphemy. I'm one of those Christians. Um, <laughs> she says, some evangelicals were dismayed, comparing Trump to Herod Agrippa in Acts chapter 12, who was called God. Herod, of course, accepted that accolade, and it did not end well for him. She goes on to state, uh, some evangelicals thinking of Trump as the king of Jews, king of the Jews, means that because he's the protector of Israel, Jews are that much closer to becoming saved and converted to Christianity. For dominionist groups, some of which are already in Israel waiting for the last days, Trump's embrace of this statement is further confirmation that he is God's man in the last days, who will help bring Christ back to earth. Have you heard this? Folks looking at Trump as God's chosen man to restore America to its supposedly Christian roots and to help bring about the kingdom of God. These are very messianic messages that they're, 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 they're importing onto this man, Donald Trump. And what do you think happens when a completely self-absorbed person who has said he doesn't need to ask God for forgiveness gets gassed up by white Christians as God's chosen man to bring redemption to the United States? Well, he starts talking like a false god. He starts believing that he is the only one who can fix the country or whatever problems are, we're facing. And he said that in the past. 
So it was only a matter of time before he started claiming the status of Messiah. He already wants to operate like a king, even though this is a democratic republic. He already evaluates all of his decisions based on how much attention it'll get him. He already picks and chooses allies based on how much they flatter him and agree with him. Of course, he's going to at some point start saying he's the savior. And I've said this for a long time. Historians are reluctant to say that anything is unprecedented because there's almost always a historical precedent for the things that we see happening now. What I will say appears unique about this president is that he really doesn't want the job. He wants attention. He is truly our reality TV president. It's all a show to him. In the past, even bad presidents, they wanted to serve. They may have had terrible morals and terrible ideas, but they saw the office of president as something bigger than themselves. And they had a sense that they were there to serve others. Donald Trump, as he has shown time and time again, and even more acutely now by calling himself the chosen one, shows that he only wants to serve himself. And that's all I have to say about that. Now it's the time in our show for the uh, very regrettably named portion, Tisbits. So I've been thinking a lot more about money and greed in relation to racism and white supremacy. It's not enough to say that people were racist, and that's why they enslaved people and segregated people and lynched people. Of course, racial hatred is a huge part of that, but it's not the only part. There has to be a currency involved. And I'm talking about more than just the cultural currency of whiteness. I'm talking about material currency, money. So the other day I went on the Pass the Mic private Facebook group and I wrote the following. With so much being said and written about the year 1619, it's becoming unavoidably apparent that the United States' greatest boast is wealth and that much of that wealth can be traced to injustice. Amassing the financial fortune of the U.S. depended on the buying, selling, trading, whipping, incarcerating, segregating, and exploiting of African-descended people. All of that was made possible by the enslavement, forcible removal, and murder of Native Americans. So as we think about this theologically, it seems to me that we as a church ought to pointedly address at least two rotten roots. Greed and racism, or white supremacy more broadly. We cannot boast in ill-gotten gain. We cannot ignore the racism that went along with it, and we cannot separate how intertwined those rotten roots of greed and racism are. Now look, I don't have the solution. I don't know what we do about this. I'm thinking more and more about economic justice. I'm thinking about the massive wealth gap between the haves and the have-nots. One report on USA Today indicates that the U.S. is the ninth worst country in the world for the gap between rich and poor. 
Many have said that we are headed to levels of inequality that resemble the Gilded Age in the late 19th and early 20th century, a little bit before the Great Depression. Now, I think that as we think about justice, now, we can't ignore wealth and income inequality. That's why efforts such as the Poor People's Campaign and others are so important. We got to recognize the intersection between race and wealth in this country and worldwide. If the United States is most known for its wealth, then it should also be known for its generosity. Taking it out of a purely national and political realm, the Bible says that for Christians, there should be no poor among you. So, are we spending too much money on buildings, sound systems, and, and stuff? While people in our own congregations struggle to pay utility bills, medical bills, find employment, pay tuition for school, and more. As important as racism and white supremacy are, they are undergirded by economic exploitation. And as neighbors to one another in this country and as Christians... We need to rethink our relationship with money and the comfort it provides in light of serving the poor among us. Lastly, we end on a bit of pop culture. For a couple of weeks now, there has been a culinary battle being waged between two giants in the world of chicken sandwiches. That's right. It's Chick-fil-A versus Popeyes. Popeyes recently came out with a fried chicken sandwich to go along with their traditional bone-in offerings, and a consensus is starting to emerge. Chick-fil-A, a longtime favorite of many, seems to be losing when it's put to the test against Popeyes. Now, one question I have is, people seem to be getting the spicy chicken sandwich from Popeyes, which has this sort of aioli mayonnaise and, and a brioche bun. Are they getting the spicy chicken sandwich from Chick-fil-A too? Are they comparing both the spicy versions side by side? Are they getting the plain Chick-fil-A and the spicy Popeyes? Because that's really not a fair fight anyway, right? I mean, the, the odds are stacked probably to begin with, but if you put the spicy versus the regular, that's a different, that's a different category, right? So are they comparing the same category? Now, Popeyes has been a favorite among black people for years and years. The spices they use leave most other fast food fried chicken far behind. Here's the thing, though. The whole competition popped off at the worst time for me. I can't even try the chicken because I'm doing Whole30 right now. So if you don't already know, Whole30 means you only eat whole foods for 30 days. Not the grocery store, like foods that are whole, whole foods. Basically, no foods that require processing, no dairy, breads, or anything that comes pre-made or in a box, because that's all got additives and, and artificial ingredients, and absolutely no added sugar, no processed sugar. So the fried part and the bun of this chicken sandwich debate are out for me. So I can't even try it. I don't know. I can't, I can't weigh in. But here's the other thing. This is sort of the cold water in the whole deal. It's hard for me not to look at the justice angle of any pop culture phenomenon. Uh, so the kind of thing that goes through my head is this. Popeyes is making millions of dollars because they have lines around the corner. They are running out daily of chicken sandwiches. It's been great publicity and marketing for them. On the one hand, the success of any company is good for the employees. 
but this financial boon for Popeyes won't be distributed equally if history is to reveal anything. Instead, the people at the top, who are already the highest paid, they'll likely reap the biggest benefits. Meanwhile, are the hourly workers at Popeyes getting a livable wage? What kind of health benefits, if any, do they get? How much time off do they get to deal with kids and life and other stuff that happens? In other words, are the people who are actually serving the chicken getting anything more out of this online competition between two giant corporations other than a lot more work to do trying to serve this sudden surge in customers? But this is what solidarity requires. It's not that we can't have any fun. I think it's a fun competition. I just wonder and sometimes worry about how we might be overlooking those who the Bible calls the least of these, even in our entertainment and diversions. But I don't want to spoil it for you. If you're enjoying this friendly competition, then go for it, enjoy it. But remember that the call for justice never goes silent. That's it for this week. Remember to register for our conference at joyandjustice.com. Also, remember to enter the Racial Justice Starter Kit book giveaway. Go to jamartisby.com for instructions. Like my author page on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash jamartisby1. It's the number one. I'm also on Instagram and Twitter, both at jamartisby. Remember, you can contact me via email at footnotespod1. That's footnotespod1 and the number one. Uh, at gmail.com. Thanks to our production assistant, Christina Button, our award-winning producer, Bo York. Footnotes is part of the Witness podcast suite. Check out thewitnessbcc.com for more great content. Thanks for listening. Until next time, I'm Jamar Tisby, and this is Footnotes. This episode was brought to you in part by United We Pray. United We Pray is a podcast devoted to praying and thinking about racial strife, especially between Christians. Come join us in praying for the unity of God's people.